It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Tuesday, June 16, 2020. On today's episode, author Ava Stashniak presents her book, The Chosen Maiden. We then have Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. On this date in history, on June 16, 1858, Abraham Lincoln, who was then running for U.S. Senator for Illinois, gave his famous A House Divided Against Itself Cannot Stand speech as he accepted the Illinois Republican Party's nomination for the Senate. Although he ended up losing that senatorial election, it gave him national exposure, and two years later, he ran for president. On June 16, 1884, the first roller coaster was used at Coney Island in New York. In 1960, the movie Psycho was released, starring Janet Leigh, Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. A few years later, in uh, 1963, the Soviet space mission Vostok 6 is launched, and Valentina Tereshkova is on board. She's the first woman in space. On June 16, 1991, former Expos player Otis Nixon, who by then was with the Atlanta Braves, steals six bases against the Expos. The Expos still won the game 7-6. Those six stolen bases in one game tied the all-time record, which goes back to 1912. Otis Nixon, by the way, is 16th place on the all-time Stolen base list with 620 career stolen bases. Another expo, Tim Raines, is fifth place with 808 stolen bases. All right, that is This Day in History. And now here's Ava Sashniak talking about her book, The Chosen Maiden. Hello, my name is Eva Stashniak, and I'm a fiction writer, the author of five novels. I'm talking to you from Toronto, where I live. And where, like most Canadians, I'm staying at home, hoping to do my small bit to limit the devastating reach of the pandemic, which affects us all. I would like to thank Cots and Luke Library for inviting me to speak to you over the phone, in order to tell you a bit about my latest novel and how I came to write it. I hope this new, unusual way of connecting will work well enough for us now and that one day we will meet at a regular author reading where you can ask me questions and where we can have more of a conversation. Montreal holds a very special place in my heart as this is where I arrived from Poland in 1981 on the eve of Solidarity Crisis and where I lived for six years first as a graduate student of McGill English Department and then as a journalist at Radio-Canada International. My first novel, Necessary Lies, draws its material and its inspiration from this experience, telling a story of a Polish immigrant to Montreal and her evolving understanding of what it means to leave her country, only to discover parts of herself she never expected to find. After Necessary Lies, I wrote several historical novels based on real-life women who inspired me and, as it will probably not surprise you, who left their own country, rewrote their lives and transformed themselves in the process. One of them was a petty Prussian princess, Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst, who is much better known as Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, 
and who became the heroine of two of my novels, The Winter Palace and Empress of the Night. Another was Bronislava Nizinska, a phenomenal 20th century ballet dancer and choreographer who became the heroine of my last novel, The Chosen Maiden, and whom some of you might know as the younger sister of Václav Nizinski, one of the most brilliant ballet dancers of all times. Here I have to confess that before I set off to write The Chosen Maiden, I didn't really know much about modern ballet. I did know about Václav Nizinski. I thought he was a Russian dancer, although his name sounded very Polish to me. I knew that his spectacular international career ended tragically right after World War I. I knew that he wrote a famous diary illustrating his descent into schizophrenia and that he died in a mental institution in his fifties. I did not know that he had a sister, let alone such a fascinating sister. The Nizhinskys were a family of dancers, a Polish family, as I quickly learned. The parents, Thomas Nizhinsky and Eleonora Bereda, came to Russia from Poland and danced for years in Russian provincial theatres where they met and married. They had three children. Two of these children, Václav and Bronislava, or Bronia, as she was called, were particularly gifted. Having passed competitive entrance exams to the Imperial Ballet School in St. Petersburg, they received excellent education, paid for by the Russian Imperial Court, a longtime patron of Russian ballet. After graduation, they became artists of the Imperial Theatres, danced at the world-famous Marinsky Theatre, and finally joined what would soon become the most influential modern dance company of the early 20th century, the Ballet Russe. The Ballet Russe was a creation of another genius, Sergei Diaghilev, an impresario credited with spotting and shaping the greatest talents of modern dance. Thanks to him, from 1909, every Ballet Russe season became a sensation. Paris, London, Berlin, Rome have not seen such dancing, such costumes, such colors before. Diaghilev, the Tsar of Art, as he was sometimes called, ruled over his dance empire with an iron hand and got the best out of his artists. He was a fascinating and difficult man of whom many outrageous stories were told. In one of them, he tore up Picasso's drawings and told him to do better. That, by the way, happened in the 1920s in Paris when Picasso, who later married one of the Valerie's dancers, was designing backdrops and costumes for some of the Balerus performances. This Balerus had become the Nizhinsky's artistic home. This is where Vaslav created his most famous ballets and where he earned the title of God of the Dance. This is where Bronya Nizhinska developed into a brilliant modern dancer and became one of the first women choreographers in history. All these achievements could have been enough to make Bronya Nizhinska a perfect candidate for a heroine of my novel. 
but what really made me fall in love with her was not her artistic accomplishments, but her early memoirs, a book in which she told the story of growing up alongside her genius brother. I learned a lot from early memoirs. I learned that Vaslav and Bronya were always aware of each other's talent and importance. Vaslav, older but almost two years, was Bronya's mentor, but she was his inspiration, his best critic, his dancing partner, and the best interpreter of his choreography. I learned about their childhood at the backstage of Russian provincial theaters where their parents danced. I learned of their ballet education and these important ballet russe years which shaped them as artists. I learned of Vaslav's troubled relationship with Sergei Diaghilev and Bronya's unrequited love for the Russian opera singer Fyodor Shalyapin. I learned of Bronya's marriage to a fellow dancer and her bitter disappointment and not being able to dance the chosen maiden in the Rite of Spring, that famous ballet Vaslav choreographed to the music of Igor Stravinsky, which, when it premiered in Paris in May of 1913, caused the now famous riots in the audience who had never seen anything like it before. The only drawback of early memoirs is that the book ends in August of 1913 with Vaslav and Bronya parting. She returns to St. Petersburg with her husband and mother to give birth to her daughter. He sails to Argentina for a tournée which will change his life. If I wanted to learn the rest of Bronya Nizhinska's story, I had to look elsewhere. I began from what was easy to find, the many excellent biographies of Vaslav Nizhinsky. His sister is always mentioned in them. Sometimes she even has a few pages to herself. She's also always mentioned in memoirs and biographies of all ballet Russe dancers, Tamara Karsavina, Anna Pavlova, Alicia Markova. There are passages about her in the biographies of Sergei Diaghilev and Igor Stravinsky, but by then, for me, this was not enough. Luckily, by then, I found out that Bronya Nizhinska's personal papers are available at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., as part of the Bronislava Nizhinska collection. This is where I found myself in 2014, among boxes of documents, scrapbooks filled with reviews, notes, letters, photographs from performances, vivid snapshots Bronya took of her family and friends, and the most tempting, her personal diaries. 200 boxes of papers, to be exact. For unlike Vaslav, whose career so tragically ended when he was only 28, Bronya's professional career lasted until her death in California at the age of 81. I spent a long time in the archives. I got to know Bronisława Nizhinska well. I read her diaries, her letters, her notes. I found out what happened to her mother, her two husbands, her children. I read about her years in the Soviet Russia, where she became a modern choreographer in her own right and where she established her own school of dancing. I read of her dramatic escape from the Soviet Kiev in 1920 
with her mother and two small children. I read of her rejoining the Belarus, her visit to the mental asylum in Vienna, where Václav barely recognized her. I read of her professional achievements in Paris, London, Monte Carlo, and later in the United States, where she emigrated in October of 1939, just at the beginning of World War II. I thought that I had everything I needed. I thought I was ready to go home, close the door to my study and start writing my novel. I did go home. I did close the door to my study and quickly realized that the abundance of archival material can be a curse as much as a blessing. In my head, the archival voice of Bronislava Nezinska was so strong and so self-assured that I could hear no other. This was not a welcome realization. After all, I wasn't writing her biography. I was writing a novel. I needed to capture essential truths about the real woman whom I grew to admire and love, but not to imitate or quote her. A novel is not a photograph, it is a painting. I needed to step back, away from the archives, where the real-life artist rule. I had to be free to imagine my own Bronya, the heroine of my novel. I began by questioning the archival sources in which I had immersed myself for so long. I reminded myself that writing is always a form of camouflage. I pounced on the tiniest of cracks in Bronya's sentences, the hesitations, the omissions, the hints. Did Bronya ever resent her brother's fame? I asked myself. She wrote repeatedly that she did not, but was she entirely honest with herself? How did she cope with the losses that plagued her life? At what cost? How did she relate to Vaslav's flamboyant wife, Romola? Or Sergei Diaghilev, who called himself her spiritual father, only to say, Oh, Bronya, what a choreographer you would have been if only you were a man. What were the ups and downs of her relationship with her own mother, her two husbands, her children? Soon I had a whole list of such questions, my first steps in the act of writing. In search of answers, I read and reread the archival material, trying to catch the slightest of hints. I examined the photographs, especially the private ones, looking for visual clues. Signs of love, resentment, fear and joy. Dancers, I reminded myself, speak with their bodies. Dancers, I realize, whom I never met. This realization was a crucial step in the writing of The Chosen Maiden. I put the books aside and reached out to contemporary dancers and choreographers. I wanted to learn as much as I could about ballet as a living, breathing art. I was lucky in my quest. Veronica Tennant, legendary Canadian prima ballerina, agreed to speak with me. Piotr Stanchik, principal soloist of National Ballet of Canada, offered his help. This was the time when Toronto Ballet was rehearsing Nizhinsky, a ballet based on Václav's life, 
a ballet in which Bronya, my chosen maiden, for this is how I began to think of her by then, dances a very important part. So what did I do? I shadowed dancers at work. I went to ballet rehearsals. I smelled the sweat-infused air, touched the bar and watched. I talked to dancers. I immersed myself in their stories, real-life stories of artists who live a life similar to Branya's. I listened when they confessed to their own fears and dreams. I took notes and asked myriads of questions. How does a dancer think? What does a dancer see that I don't when we both watch people pass by our cafe table? I took note of the expressions they used, how specific they were when they talked of movements. Someone bends from the hips, for example, not just bends. I noted the attention they paid to the body, its mechanics, its limitations, and their insistence that, in the end, the art of dancing comes not from the body, but from the soul. This is why so many great dancers overcame their physical limitations. Anna Pavlova, her fragile ankles, Alicia Markova, her buckled knees, which needed strengthening. Armed with these insights, I travelled to some of the places I describe in the novel. Théâtre du Châtelet, where the ballerie's dazzled Paris with its first season in 1909, a success repeated year after year. I visited Monte Carlo, the set of Bronya's greatest unrequited love for Russian operatic genius Fyodor Shalyapin. I visited Venice, where she heard Stravinsky, Václav and Diaghilev discuss the rite of spring, and Théâtre de Champs-Élysées in Paris, where the rite of spring premiered. I went to the Russian Orthodox Cathedral in Paris, where Russian emigres gathered in the 20s and 30s. I recreated Bronya's journey through Normandy in 1935, visited a sleepy town of Evreux, where she lived through unspeakable pain. I was at the Théâtre Vielki in Warsaw, where she choreographed her last pre-war ballets. I followed the trail of her dead, visiting their graves and reflecting on the staggering losses of her life. These places rooted my writing, allowed me to be there with her when I wrote. But only when I sat at my desk and began to write what would become The Chosen Maiden, I realized that I have one more asset, one more connection with the woman whose life has captivated me so much. The intimate structure of Eastern European family. As the men are erased from the Nijinsky family story by choice or by cruel fate, it is the women who take their place and carry on. Three generations of the Nijinsky women, Eleonora, Bronya, Irina, grandmother, mother, daughter. They are proud and strong, steadfast, nurturing and fiercely loyal. They stand by each other even in the hardest of circumstances. As the world around them is torn apart by wars and revolutionary upheavals, they know that they cannot afford to be weak. 
the existence of their family depends on them. This is a story which most Eastern European families, including my own, know by heart. And this is why, as I wrote The Chosen Maiden, I found myself transported to the arms of the Polish women of my childhood, my own grandmother and mother. They too were brave, nurturing, tough as nails, determined to wrench any chance they could from the little that they had. Born in what would one day be called the bloodlands of Europe, between them they lived through two world wars, a revolution, a Nazi occupation, and years of communist repression. Having experienced staggering losses, they still found a way to keep me safe and hopeful. If the door closes, climb through the window. You fell? Pick yourself up and keep going. We've come through worse times and we didn't give up. Resist when fighting is not possible. Remember, we are watching you. These voices still ring in my ears as they rang in Bronya's ears all her life. The Chosen Maiden is my tribute to them. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, be healthy, and may books always bring you pleasure. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. I'm so glad you're all here with me tonight. So I want to do this song in French for you. Um, and it is called Aimer. And I don't think anything is more important than love, right? I think we can all agree on that. So this is for you, my friends. It goes like this. Yeah, you go. Hey, me, 
I was going to do that was from Romeo and Juliet. I just wanted to mention, De Romeo and Juliet. Here we go. So why don't we start with The King and I? Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way but nicely. Across 
that you love that song. Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes 
concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day. Thank you.